Welcome to the Going to Seed podcast. My guest today is Mark Reed. And providing technical support today are Julia Dakin and Holly Hanson. Oh, no. <laughs> and um, sorry about pronunciation. Anyway, Mark Reed has been a backyard gardener for more than 60 years. He learned basic gardening techniques from his father and grandfather. In the 1970s, he abandoned the use of pesticides and purchased fertilizers and began saving some of his own seeds, mostly tomatoes and beans. Over the years, he became more interested in saving his own seeds, but at first was largely focused on varietal preservation. Mark wrote, one of the primary goals was that heirloom preservation was necessary in case the genetic diversity was needed at some point in the future. I finally realized now is the future and what, what's needed isn't all of those individually named varieties, but the genes they contain. Why would I care if my two favorite watermelons cross-pollinate? The result is still good watermelons and the problem of isolation distance and population size aren't really problems at all. Nothing is lost except the names, end of quote. The discovery of a few seeds of an old ornamental sweet potato plant about 10 years ago pulled Mark into the world of actual plant breeding and he's been strongly focused on it ever since. I first remember Mark from the Homegrown Goodness Plant Breeding Forum. His writings over the years deeply influenced how I think about plant breeding and landrace gardening. His pragmatic, sensible approach calms me and helps me to take the long view towards my garden and ecosystem. So welcome, Mark, Holly, and Shane. Thank Hello. you. <laughs> Thank you. So Mark, could you tell us a little about your background? <laughs> my background in plant breeding, you mean? Or, or just in, in general background, and then we'll get to plant breeding in a little bit. Well, we'll just stay with uh, with gardening in general, I suppose. Like I said, I I Sweet. started doing that. Pardon? Sweet. Started doing that when I was, I can't remember when I didn't grow gardens. I uh, remember the first things I think I grew on purpose were watermelons, which I discovered that, that you could just stick in the sand by the river and by magic, they would come back the next year. I remember my dad explaining to me where those watermelons came from that were hanging in the trees down by the river. So, and then I followed him around in the garden for years and my grandfather around in the garden, helping him out. And that just led to doing it forever. The watermelons hung from the trees? Yeah, they did. <laughs> the trees? Pardon? The vines climbed the trees? Yeah, there was the the Ohio River Bank that's got a big sandy open area where the, you know, is scoured of vegetation when the water goes up and down. And then above that, it's covered with driftwood and all kinds of stuff that's that was left behind when the water came still higher. And we lived right beside that and played in that and ate watermelons and spit the seeds out down there in that and muskmelons too. And they liked it down there. They came up in that sand beside the river and they grew literally into the trees and up onto those big driftwood piles. And we'd <laughs> smash them open with sticks and eat just the best hot part out of the middle. 
the laying in the sun, it was nice and warm and it's sweeter that way. Uh -huh. So, but we didn't know where those came from at first, or I didn't, I guess my older brothers and sisters did. But anyway, wow. turns that out, that, awesome. but that's a, that's a very small kid's memory. I don't know how many years that went on really for the, a big flood on the Ohio river decided we weren't going to live there anymore because it was, so it, it went back down, but we didn't go back. And I, wow. and I decided then, even though I was like six, I decided I will not live where a river can get me in the middle of the night. <laughs> I'm 400 feet above it now. Nice. So could you describe the path that led you to crop breeding? Well, crop breeding, that came along quite a lot later. I mean, I started saving seeds. And, and I guess some people say, if you're saving seeds, you're a crop breeder. And I was selecting, as I did, like I've got a an heirloom pole bean called Kentucky wonder. And it's, you know, I haven't endeavored to keep it, you know, pure really. It just doesn't easily cross on its own. So it stayed that way on its own, but still it changed over 20 or 30 years because of how I favored selection for the seeds. Just, and that was basically that, that when it came time, when the pods were drying down and turning brown, if it's got diseases or if bugs have been on it, those pods are all blemished. So all I did with those beans was when I had the option, I didn't always have the option because some years the disease or bugs were real bad. I just saved pods from the ones that had less of that blemish. And, and over a long time, the, even the seeds themselves changed the shape and length of the pods, the, the shade of color to the seeds, but they still taste the same. So they're my Kentucky Wonder pole beans. <laughs> and it's ones I've seen since that somebody had a packet of them. They didn't even look like my seeds. So I don't know. But anyway, so I guess I was doing it inadvertently, unknowingly anyway. But I didn't purposely doing it until about, I don't know, 10 years ago or so. When I first met you on on the HG website or the, what was that, Homegrown Goodness? Was that the name of it? I first met you on that forum, and then I really started. So what were your local growing conditions like when you started? Uh, well, How same as now. I'm, I'm in the same general location. Weather patterns have changed over the years. Weather extremes have changed over the years. The And I've been where I am now for about 30 years. And so the soil in my, especially in my oldest and largest garden that I've been amending for all, for all that time. It's uh, much looser, easier to work with than the back garden, which has only been a garden for about 10 years. So it can get hot here where I live. It can get over 100. It normally gets into the 90s for several weeks in the summer or near to it. And it can also get really cold in the winter. So we have so it do all. You, do you flood irrigate or sprinkler or... <laughs> that's a big issue for me i don't irrigate and i never used to have to and but in the last 10 or 15 years it's and especially and it's it's becoming more and more of a necessity and i'm not really set up well for it i i use mostly city water my rain catchment runs out pretty quick so i have these great big stock tank troughs in the setting in the garden and i fill them <laughs> i fill them with water from the garden from the city water and let them sit there for the chlorine to evaporate out some and for the temperature to come up some. 
because because I don't know if a plant likes 50 degree water poured on it when it's you know 102 degrees in the sun it might be a bit of a shock so. I'm gonna think it uh, burns the leaves that, that can be really well I don't water the leaves I, I water I water you know heavily and directly mostly by hand to just the ground I don't I don't water the foliage for the most part if I run it straight out of the garden hose, I just lay it on the ground and let it run out. Or if I use it out of my tubs, I've got my milk jugs and I just pour it directly where it needs to be and try not what, to get it. What kind of weed pressure do you do you have? Not very much. I mean, you could have weeds. There are plenty of weeds here, but I've kind of made peace with them. Uh, they don't bother me. I mean, they're certainly in my garden, but they don't hurt anything in fact they help i think i've learned i've figured out ways that they're they're just no big deal i mean occasionally there's a weed that you know of a particular type like say a perennial grass that you don't want to get established in your garden but but the way i do my garden beds and without any tilling weeds just kind of they're just not a problem even though there are plenty of them okay. and one one drawback with with the way that goes along the same lines maybe as, as as what's happening to the weeds is I'm having to make sure and leave some bare and disturbed areas for my uh, feral radishes and mustards and things like that because the same things I was doing that got those weeds to where they're not a problem was was getting in the way of those things doing whatever they wanted wherever they wanted because before when I was tilling and scattering stuff around those just came up everywhere all the time and now it's more controlled with permanent paths and permanent beds and a lot of times mulch and stuff you know on the beds through winter even sometimes and a lot of those plants were kind of suffering a little bit as far as having a place to grow so how long have you done no-till about the same time about 10 years and I was really amazed at how fast the conditions in my garden and my soil improved from that. Because before when you're rototilling and you're going down six inches or whatever, or maybe eight inches, if you, you know, really work at it, you've just got that worked up layer on top of the hard underneath and, and it never gets better. But when you stop doing that and let the, and plant daikon radishes and things like that, where their roots will pierce you know, deep down and don't ever disturb that. It just in a relatively short period of time, it seemed to me a shockingly short period of time. I didn't expect anything like what happened, but now I, for the most part can, you know, I can make my rows to plant with my fingers if I want to almost. So wow. <laughs> not so much in the back garden, which has only been a garden a less amount of time and it's still full of tree roots. So what's your biggest challenge? You know, I don't know. I saw that question. I can't think what the biggest challenge are. You know, everything can be a challenge and everything can be a help. It's just about. So I can't I can't give you a biggest on the on that. Weather maybe. Weather. But you gotta have I weather. Always, I always want to plant more than I have time to Oh take. well. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I could get into that, but and and especially just in the last few years, I've decided, you know, I don't need to grow every species in the world. You know, <laughs> diversity is great, but there are things that grow fairly well for me, and I can just work on making them grow even better. 
obscure or forgotten or wild things for the most part because I like what I got. Shane, can you jump in here with a couple questions? Oh, just just an observation on on that issue. There's a concept called Dunbar's number that is the idea that a human can only maintain about 100, 150 relationships in their life uh, before they just get overwhelmed, keeping track of all the details. And I think there's a Dunbar's number for crop breeders with like how many how many crops you can actually keep going or uh, just on your own. But I I did have a question as well. When you so, get to the active, uh, when you get to the active breeding part, that number is about three or four for me. <laughs> Everything else, it's it's breeding. I'm just not paying all that much attention to it. Yeah, does. yeah, I, I would totally agree with that kind of number being being a comfortable maximum for most people. Now, you've done a lot of work with sweet potatoes, and I think we might talk about that in a bit more detail later. But I was really curious to find out if you've done any work with the relatives of sweet potatoes that are edible, because I know there's a few in the, the southern US that have, have a history of use as a food source. Well, I did tinker with that a little bit. Because we have the wild ponderata, I think. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. It's mm. supposedly in in the the you know, the romanticized lore out there. It makes these gigantic roots that the Indians ate and all that. I don't know, but anyway, it grows here. And so I, I attempted to cross I, I went I drove down the road and collected pollen, collected flowers from the wild plants and and on one occasion I did get two seeds on a on a sweet potato plant that I believe were pollinated by that, but they didn't sprout. Mm -hmm. And then I read, I think on the, on an OSSI forum talking about grafting and how there can be genetic transfer through grafting. So I experimented with grafting wild stem onto a sweet potato root and that worked, mm -hmm. but that's as far as I went, I didn't follow up. I didn't even take care of that graft plant. I just wanted to know for future, if I ever, you know, want to take that up more if I thought there was any possibility of it. So maybe if you graft one, graft a stem onto a sweet potato and then use that pollen as well, or the sweet potatoes pollen, I suppose that'd be a better way to do it. Well, so as far as any detail to it or help that I could offer on that, it's pretty, pretty slim. <laughs> so sweet potato follows the pattern of a lot of other crops it's originally a hybrid of two or maybe three wild species that were diploids right and when that. you when you do white crosses <laughs> like that you often have to duplicate the the new lopsided genome up to a polyploid to restore fertility so i'm pretty sure sweet potatoes are hexaploid it's got like six it's got six copies of the genome in it from various original species and I reckon the better way to do it would be to go back to two or three diploid wild species that have some useful traits in their roots and hybridize them to actually make a completely new kind of sweet potato from scratch rather than the trying to mix. To yeah, potato. mixing a wild diploid with a hexaploid like Franken crop like sweet potato <laughs> is is really <laughs> awkward to get the genomes to line up. But if you went back and reproduced the process that created sweet potatoes from different wild ancestors, there's all sorts of possibilities. And I started playing around with that. I had like three or four of those species, but 
Ipermere just hate my soil. I started putting trials of them out in the ground and they just <laughs> they just sat there and blinked at me and said, no, we're not doing this. So I'm like, okay, so it's a job for someone else to do who has nicer sandy yeah, soil. I, I collected up a giant stack. If I was to print it, it'd probably be six inches high of all the research that I could find about sweet potatoes and, and going back 150 years and at the University of Hawaii and the University of... Louisiana, North Carolina, and and much farther back government research stuff, and Asia. It's real big in Asia, and but I decided, you know, I'm not I'm not a a scientist like this. I don't have a laboratory. I'm not going to be actually visually observing genes. So I just did the same with them as I do with everything else. Is just basically you watch them and select. But, well, I am guiding them now some in a couple of different directions. So. For the audience so, who doesn't know your um, background, do you want to tell us a summary of your sweet potato restoration of fertility project? <laughs> well, it started when on, on that homegrown goodness forum and someone was talking about breeding sweet potatoes. And and it was, you know, the kind of the consensus was it's not, you know, it's not worth the trouble, blah, blah, blah. And and I actually had throughout my life grown sweet potatoes just a few times they weren't something that was a a cultural thing that i remembered here and but coincidentally about the same time as that forum thread showed up there was a sweet potato plant an ornamental sweet potato plant growing in a pot on my front patio and i went out there and looked at it and it had some seeds and i still didn't want to really mess with it i even i remember on that forum you know sent out and asked does anybody want these and nobody answered so so the next year i planted them and i got some other heirloom kinds from sandhill preservation and a couple which i'm afraid might have been lost when they had their derecho event i'm not not but anyway and they they all bloomed some well some of the ones i bought didn't bloom some did bloom some didn't some bloomed but didn't make seeds but some of them bloomed and the offspring of those seeds, those or the ones that grew from those seeds I found, they bloomed. And and that's where it started. So and then it started out, my goal of it that I stated when I've written about it was to turn sweet potatoes into a seed grown annual. And and I kind of have done that. But it needs some work still <laughs> because sweet potatoes are extremely bizarre genetically i i mean i don't need to read about them i can tell that by looking you know they they and they do weird things so so the goal if you're going to be a seed going annual that hasn't been the step that hasn't been met is um making it a hundred percent or near a hundred percent chance that any particular seed will produce a good plant and good, good plant meaning in this context makes nice roots and an, and an abundance of them. So, cause right now I'd say it's, it's maybe 50, 50, you know, that you'd have to plant two seeds to make sure you got one that was going to make nice roots and what could and the other one might not, but I've, and then I've always selected for a whole string of traits that are, I like a bushy growth habit you know that doesn't sprawl out over the ground the roots need to be in a nice clump directly under the main stems 
so that I don't have to dig a crater to find them. First of all, especially in the first five years or so, it was absolutely, you know, if you didn't make seeds, you were out no matter what. You know, if you were the best tasting sweet potato the world ever seen, if you didn't make seeds, you you know, I didn't keep you. So anyway, to, to, to find all of my preferred traits in a single plant, the chances of that is maybe 5% at best, but, but just two or three of them, if they meet, you know, just, you know, they're, they're, they're fine without doing all of that. If they're, if they turn out to be a great root, you can clone it. If nothing else, if they're a beautiful ornamental, you can eat the foliage. So, but yeah, I still want to increase that. I still want to up that probability that any particular seed will produce, will have at least more than one of the, of the required or desired traits. So, so this year I have them kind of semi-isolated, the ornamental group in one cluster and the culinary group is what I'm calling them in another cluster so that the bees, you know, there's going to be some transfer anyway, because they're only like 10 feet apart. It's much less than if they were right beside each other. Right. Anyway, I could ramble about sweet potatoes. So you mentioned some of your priorities for sweet potatoes. Is that a generally applied to all of the crops that you work with or yeah. what are your priorities when you're dealing with crops well one well first of all is is they have you know it's it's just real simple is you know it has to grow and produce well for me and i really like if there's any single thing that i that i prefer and try to select for and if i'm going to buy new genetics you know from commercial sources or whatever you know, like when I started my okra land race, if you want to call it, which is doing really well. I didn't know how much I liked okra. I like to look for the shortest days to maturity possible because that's what I think gives me the, the greatest chance of a good harvest. It doesn't matter if something is going to be, you know, a spectacular harvest, if it's going to take 115 or 120 days to do it. I want it in 100 days or less, and in some things less than that even. Even with my sweet potatoes, they go from sprouting from a seed to a to a harvestable-sized root in about 100 days. So, and whatever the crop is, if it's, you know, because some crops, of course, take longer than others, but what, the shortest amount of time period within that species is a, is a big thing of mine. And then, I don't know. That's kind of, those are the only commons, I guess. Okay. Tell us about your Brockwish. Tell us how that you started. I know it's a really fun crop for you. How did you get started on that? And Well, with my Brockwish, I decided I had trouble. I don't have storage places to keep like heads of cabbage and buckets of sand in the basement or something. I don't have that. <clears throat> I don't. And I was unable in multiple tries for several years to get any significant amount of anything in that plant family to live through the winter. And with dill and radishes and mustard and things like that and sunflowers and marigolds, they adapted themselves and just did whatever they wanted to do and came up volunteer. And I got to wondering, would that family of plants do that? if I just left it alone to do what it wanted to do. And so I bought all of the, the, or, or, see, how do you pronounce that? 
anybody know? I just got all of the different varieties of that that I possibly could because I didn't know which one would be hardier or which one wasn't because the main thing was that they needed to live through the winter, which the big mature plants planted traditionally in the spring never did. And and I theorized, I guess, you know, they, they make their plants sometime in the summer or fall is when they make their seeds. So that's when you plant them. So that's what I did. And and it was it was just great fun. And anybody it was super easy and in my climate. And anybody with the, you know, probably lots and lots of people, whether their climate is very similar to mine or not, it's it was just really easy to do. And so and then the next spring when they come up or the next late winter, or when they start growing again, I mean, they came up in fall and lived through the winter. So that was the first important thing. And then when they start resume growth in the cold of in the very early spring when it's cold, they taste wonderful. They're not bitter because of it's too hot. They don't need watered every fifteen minutes because it's too dry. It's too cold for the bugs that bother them. So you've got this several week period when you can just continually harvest the stalks and the flower buds, and they're delicious. And then as they mature more and the seeds and you start letting some of the seed pods dry, well, it's getting hot by then and the bugs are here. That's okay. They they can just, the bugs can have it as long as they leave the seeds alone and they generally do. Mm -hmm. But this year, some kind of little blue birds decided those seeds were pretty tasty, but there's, (laughs) but there's millions of seeds. So I didn't worry about that. And I actually didn't plant broccoli this year because it's volunteer all over the place. So, so when it starts to grow in the fall, does it die back in the winter? But the root stays no. alive. It comes up from the root in the spring, or when it's warmer. No, the one any that I've seen that died down to the ground died. With maybe a couple exceptions, where a little shoot grew back up, you know, from down under the ground. But the ones that stay alive, they look pretty ratty. But when they get hit by minus fourteen degrees after it not being hardly freezing at all for you know, up to that point, they look pretty ratty, but they're alive still. And then as soon as it begins to warm up in the spring a little bit, they, or even during warm spells in winter, they'll start growing and you can harvest the leaves and, and, and they're just sweet and crisp. And so. I always used to think that I didn't like kale, but that's because I grow it in the heat of the summer. But if I grow it in the winter and I get to taste it, First thing in the spring, it's like eating candy. I know, I know. Yeah, some of them are. And then, and um, I tend not to like, you know, a purple color of what the pigment, whatever that is, that creates that. Like in uh-huh. carrots, if it's in beans, on you know, or um, sweet potatoes, even I don't. It's got a weird flavor to me, but the purple reddish color in those first spring broccoli leaves it uh, is like you don't even want to cook it you just eat it shane could you take us through a discussion of all things garden <laughs> oh sorry i i don't have the prompts in front of me i, I was hoping that that you were doing it i only had the pandorata question to ask about the the band route about what i i only had the question about the um the wild species the wild ancestors of sweet potatoes oh sweet well <laughs> so well, for what it's worth, I totally printed out a, a nice printout of 
of what we were going to talk about today, and then I left at home, and so this is just the generic. <gasps> Okay, okay. okay. Give, give me a moment. I'll, I'll bring it up. Uh, We're doing all right. So, Mark, could you tell us just your general strategy towards gardening and projects that you're really capturing your attention right now? Well, my general strategy, I think, is try to make it as easy and fun as you can and don't get stressed out about it too much. And as far as the sweet potatoes, of course, is the thing that's uh, well, I actually got working on two kinds of corn this year, and that's fun. My popcorn, I'm trying to figure out the true relationships, you know, uh, as far as um, dominant and recessive of the various colors of corn, especially in oh. the outer run layer. And I did an excited, so I did an experiment and, on that, but I got a really great mix of popcorn going, I think. And it was started with five or six little miniature ornamental popcorns mixed with three very, very good actual pop-it-to-eat-it popcorns. So uh -huh. that's what I'm, I'm I want to recreate something along the lines of glass jam only that's fit to eat and yeah. it doesn't, and it doesn't take 105 years to, to mature a crop. That glass jam crap is not worth growing in my climate. In I'm, my not climate wait, I'm not waiting climate. that long. And that's weird because most corns, you know, they mature quickly in, in the heat, but but that one doesn't. It no. takes, yeah. So it's I, out there. For me, it was 130-day corn, which is yeah. way too much. Yeah. But yeah, you don't even have that long of a season. Yeah. No, I have like 100 frost-free days in a good year, but corn can handle like 20 days of frost in the early, early spring. And so, so it was just that glass gem, I only grew one crop, but that was before it became popular. And so I sold the seed for a dollar a seed. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that, that was a good place to be. PayPal yeah. out for a few days because I was all of a sudden making a lot of money. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, I, I have this season for it, but I don't have the patience for it. And, yeah, you know, and that's something I find sometimes with a lot of you know, like I'm getting tired. I'm waiting on you, you stupid carrots. You know, uh -huh. <laughs> you're in my way. You're getting on my nerves, and you start, and you need to start drying down them seeds. So right, but, but that's you know, my garden's small. So if I'm, if something's using the space to to finish its seeds, I'm not using it for something else. So do you grow squash? I very little. I had almost given up. I'm trying to get back into squash, and I had some actually this year that did pretty good. It's from row seven seeds, I think. I can't remember what they called it. Sweet something, but it's a little butternut-like squash. Mm -hmm. So, and it did real well. I had like two plants, and I got I don't know a couple dozen squash off of them. So, and then oh yeah, and there's candy roasters out there, and I don't know. I've never grown them before. And I don't know for sure when they're going to be ready, but they they got to be ready pretty soon. But I had used to grow a lot of acorn squash and a lot of summer squash and the invasion of two or three different kinds of new bugs. And mm -hmm. along with weather getting warmer and drier, I'd pretty almost given up on squash. I'm going to check and see what the species of these two that are uh, doing fairly well this year are so that I can get more and mix them in there. I don't know if they're the same or not. I'm not as familiar as with all the different kinds of squash that 
that I'd need to be to start breeding them. So I remember you saying something about you're growing some kind of wildflower that has done particularly well for you. Could you tell us about that? Oh, I got wildflowers out the wazoo. In spring, we dames rocket. I have fields of dames rocket. And I found out recently that you can eat dames rocket. But yeah. one of, and then I've got Virginia bluebells, aster, asters is my favorite. Asters and asters is by any definition a true land race because I collected these asters over my geographic region along, I don't know, five or six counties or more along the Ohio River in Indiana and then in Kentucky and in uh, Ohio both. And I selected them for to have a larger size flower and a and a simpler flower, you know, just a single row of larger petals instead of smaller rows of, and I just love them. Uh, and they're, they're getting ready to bloom right now. And when the asters bloom, you're done. They're the last <laughs> things and they do it, but they're just so glorious. So, and I have no idea the species. I, I don't pay attention to that too much. Like a lot. I mean, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, but so yeah, I love to collect up my my wildflowers and 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 then columbine. I collected up wild columbine and it crossed with some tame varieties, and so now it's and I select on it for a particular flower form. Now on the asters, they're the I don't know if actually sometimes bees. I don't know the life cycle of of some of the common bee of some of our wild bees. But in the fall, they, they're just about the last, very last thing to bloom. And all kinds of bees swarm them because there's not much else left. And some bees just seem to go to sleep there and die and <laughs> when, it gets, when it gets cold. So I guess, I don't know if they're, you know, they're just, that's their life cycle. They're going to die anyway. And that's, and they choose to do it on a bed of aster flowers. That, um, that makes me that makes me want to ask this question. If you could like had unlimited resources and time and could wave a magical wand, what plant species would you want to work with? But for you, one local wildflower and one edible crop. Well, I guess it would be asters and sweet potatoes. <laughs> so because I have spent I mean, I spent a lot of time driving around in the fall looking for the for the asters to dig up to bring home because they're they're not all this they're not all the same and the rare ones are rare and the rare ones are the pure white ones i think pure white is rare and uh, pure white is rare in the dame's rocket as well mm -hmm. and uh -huh. and some other plants uh, in our in our wild plants around here if, do you have any thoughts of turning the the dame's rocket into an, an edible of like selecting it for better flavor well, since I have only known for a couple of months that it is inedible, <laughs> the first thing I thought I might do is go out next spring and taste it. And I'll taste a very little bit of it to make sure I don't fall over dead. And then, <laughs> and then if I don't, I'll maybe taste some more of it. So for me, the Dame's Rocket grows wild along a path that I bike on frequently. Yeah. And so I eat it like I would the broccolis, eating the flowers off of it first thing in the or when they're flowering. Oh and yeah, be a delightful way to eat it. I haven't tried cooking it or anything like that. Well, I'll definitely sample some of it in the. I love how it moves around in in mass. It's uh, it's like a, 
it's it's a perennial but only for a couple of years and it seems like you know one year there's a giant patch of it out by the driveway and down the road and then that one kind of fades away and all of a sudden there's a great big patch of it over by the pond and it's just really fun okay would you can describe your vision what you think about for the future of food in your community well that one's kind of a tough one it's <laughs> i haven't really ever gave that much thought i i don't know right now it's mostly just people going to walmart and some people have gardens but i don't know i i don't know whether to be optimistic about that or not i've not thought it through much it's not just never crossed my mind I mean, I'm out in my garden, you know, I'm out there and I'm digging around my sweet potatoes and I'm listening to the birds and, and that just isn't something that I ponder. Yeah. So Dame's rocket question coming through on the chat is a brassica. <laughs> and so it, it tastes just like a, a mustard or something. So really pleasant flavor for me. Cool. Uh, that's what I read about it, that it was a lot of names rocket. But yeah, the my, they asked, well, I don't know. I've got pictures. I could post some pictures of both of those. They asked her, they seem like they show up at night, especially if there's a little bit of moon, moonlight, and they're just like, you know, stars in the sky, millions of them, when there's a big patch of them. Rocket is fragrant. So when you drive up in the evenings and get out of your car and you know, it's only fragrant at night, but it's very fragrant when there's a, a great big patch of it and and the whole yard smells like that. And then Japanese honeysuckle, I've got a big bunch of it and it's real fragrant. We have a lot of flowers and, and mine in particular are mostly ones that I gathered up wild when I first moved here because I don't believe in paying money for stuff. Right. Especially when their favorite stuff is the ones that you can dig up along the road. Yeah. yeah. Shane, any last question before we open it up to the general? Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll probably finish off with what's your final message to people who are thinking about getting into crop breeding themselves? I might ask them first if they're already a gardener. Are we there? Yeah. My yeah. Screen, can you hear me? Because my I screen is closed. Uh, okay. I can hear you. I can hear you. Yeah. And then if so, you know, it just everything just so much depends on their um, experience level. Um, if you're just kind of really a beginner, pick something real easy and fun and with a low chance, like broccoli, you know, find some things that easily cross pollinate and, and let them do so. And that you don't have to hand pollinate unless you're into that, which I'm not. Just for your first thing, pick something easy and see how it goes. Maybe even a full, but broccoli should be a good choice. I have a question. I have a question for you, Reed. Are you uh -huh. sharing your broccoli seed on the on our seed share? I don't remember if I put some in the last time that I sent some, but I'm going to I'm gonna send some along, you know, this year. Okay. But I don't do the round I don't do the you know, the the seed um the serendipity thing. I, I don't do that. I don't I've got more than enough seeds I need. I'm just going to, I just send a package to Julia. <laughs> I just send a package to Julia or to whoever is in charge of it um, all at one time. And there'll be some broccoli seed in there. Okay. I'm just interested in it because I'm kind of where you started. All of my kales, they didn't make it through winter. 
I had collard greens that came back from the root. My cabbages did well this year. They went to seed. All of them wintered over. And a couple of them grew heads again this year, plus went to seed. Oh, wow. That was quite interesting. So, I've had a few plants that I thought and hoped might live through a second winter, but, but none have so far. Just a final question before we forget. How can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about your your plant breeding work and maybe beg you for a few seed? Because I know you're fairly generous <laughs> in that regard. Well, I'm on the Land Race Garden Forum and then on the OSSI Forum. And I go by my real name on both of those. So they could message me on one of those. Wonderful. <laughs> so so the open... OSSI form would be openplantbreeding.org. And the other one would be going to seed.org. Sweet. I'll, I'll put so, all those links. And in actually, the I need to go through. Actually, I need to go through my um, messages and posts. Unless maybe Emily's been doing it. I hope Emily's been doing it. But I've mentioned a couple of times, you know, there's particular people I'm going to was going to send particular stuff to. But I forget who they were. <laughs> a couple of them I've got written down, but I know there's others that should be on my list. So I'll just put a post if I told you, you you could have some seeds and you don't get them to remind me. All right. Thank you for a great discussion so far. And let's open it up for comments. And I don't have the ability on my end to see who has a hand raised to comment. So if Shane or Julia can facilitate that, would you please? Sure thing, sure thing. I'll keep an eye on the monitors. <laughs> okay. Any, so any questions for Mark? I've got all the questions which I felt were probably answered in the first half an hour of this call, but I apologize for missing. Is there is there going to be a replay <clears throat> sent out? Uh, yeah, the episode will be put up uh, shortly. Amazing. Thank you. But feel free to ask. Feel free to ask. It could be an important question. Well, I see the sweet potato seed breeding, and I'm curious how common are sweet potato seeds? I can't say I've ever seen a sweet potato seed myself. Well, all all indications is, you know, they're extremely uncommon. Mm. And, and I think that's probably true, except I'm not sure that the extremely needs emphasized quite so much. It's kind of like a lot of Sometimes things are, you know, you, the research and the stuff that you read makes you believe something that's not really true sometimes. <laughs> they are uncommon because a lot of them don't bloom at all. A lot of them are not compatible with themselves. Most of them are not self-compatible. Oh, we've lost him. Did he drop out? <laughs> it was freezing for a while. I, I was just going to point out sweet potatoes have a lot of parallels with garlic that they've been propagated by cuttings for like thousands of years and they've kind yeah. of just forgotten how to flower and produce seed reliably. Um, and mm -hmm. yeah, Reed, Reed pretty much on his own in our community has brought that ability to produce seed and sweet potatoes back through wow. just observation and, and persistence. Is is he doing anything to encourage their flowering, like spraying any any plant hormones or any acids that might help stimulate flowering? I'll see if he comes back, but I'll I'll speak from memory from following the work that he's talked about. He relied on an ornamental sweet potato that was 
that flowered very strongly to begin and wow. that he, he just observed spontaneously created some seeds and then for the last 10 years he's been growing those seeds in amongst other tuber forming varieties and selecting oh, every um, year for ones that produce good roots quickly wow that's exciting yeah, so so mark and i were collaborating for some years on the sweet potato project and the one of the most or the most important thing was they have to produce seeds in order for you to be able to do plant breeding with them and so that there was tremendous uh, selection early on for for ability to produce seeds i'm i'm curious joseph while i have you do these seed grown sweet potatoes perform well under your conditions so my season is very cold even during the hottest part of the summer the mm. temperatures are like 50 degrees sorry i don't can't translate that but very cold yeah yeah even or very cold every night because of the desert mm. uh, and the radiant cooling and the high mountain and so so for me i was able to grow seed grow seed planted sweet potatoes and harvest tubers that weighed like eight ounces or something so mm-hmm. it was just on the edge of being really suitable or, you know, it was just on the edge of being viable for me. Mm. But then I had one bad summer and I lost my uh, one bad winter and I didn't save tubers and I lost my seeds from a bad summer. And so my sweet potato breeding project was just over. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was pretty, I was guessing that you were probably too, marginal that like you'd occasionally have an okay year but it just wasn't worth the effort most of the time well we'll see if i if i were to grow sweet potatoes in a raised bed where they get um, higher ground temperature because of the raised bed and the sunshine Mm. i would be able to grow sweet potatoes but i just can't plant them in the open field and and expect them to do to thrive for me yeah yeah but I mean, that's an important part of this community. It's not that you necessarily want to force everything to grow everywhere. Like you, you kind of roll with the punches, and and if something does well for you, and another thing struggles, you you go for the thing that does well. Right. And earlier we talked about how people can have a hundred relationships, and maybe with plants they can have three or four mm. relationships where they're really intense. And sweet potatoes were like that hundred and first crop for me, and so <laughs> it just didn't work out for me. Is there any cross breeding between Ipoma aquatica, the oh, Hang the on. name evades me? Um, I'm pretty sure it's a diploid because it's close to a wild species, and sweet potatoes are a hexaploid. They're a weird hybrid of like original wild species. So you could try crossing them, but it would be a long shot to get any seeds. But mm. um, we were talking before, there's a lot of wild, like there's 200 wild species in the genus of sweet potatoes. And about a dozen of those have a history of being used for edible roots all around the world. Even mm. some in Australia here out in the deserts, they grow. You, you see, I've seen footage of the Aboriginal women digging these roots up that go down like two meters into a sand dune. And they're just they're digging, dig, dig, digging them out. And yeah, I think there's potential if there's any 
crazy people out there who want to do a really speculative project to go back to those original species and try recreating a hybrid that can become something like a sweet potato because that mm. just happened by accident however many thousands of years ago today we could do that deliberately with all sorts of other combinations of wild species fantastic it's exciting isn't it it is <laughs> so it is essential. whereabouts are you mark oh sorry mark um uh, mark reed yeah i think he's dropped out he might have lost his signal yeah mark, mark just texted saying that he's dropped out and or lost his signal whatever so any last questions before we wrap it up then no were there any good. on the chat there was one from debbie purple fleshed asian sweet potatoes related to orange fleshed i would say yes they're all in the same collective i do so remember when I, I think i saw a genetic with... analysis that there was an early split in the population that the purple start and white starchy ones and the orange kind of two branches, but I don't quote me on that. When we were doing a breeding with the sweet potatoes, it was really lovely because the the skin color and the flesh color might not necessarily be related. And so we were finding like purple outsides and white insides and orange and just a lot of beautiful colors and combinations and it, it was really nice not just the you know you get purple or you get orange or you get white and nothing else mm -hmm. there's a lot of grades in between them that made them really fun to work with and really annoying to work with too but because <laughs> when you start dealing with a hexaploid species you know there's so much genetics going on and how they all interact with each other that it can be a real struggle if you if you value your clone-like appearance. Sweet potatoes are nice because you can clone them if you find something you really like. But what Mark is really working towards is seed-grown sweet potatoes because then you could take the sweet potato seed, store it for years, and plant whenever you want and get a great harvest. There's a lot of value in that kind of just crops that you don't have to constantly be maintaining through cloning or something like that. And you've got that genetic capacity to adapt. Right. right. Mm, absolutely. Brilliant. Oh, thanks, everyone. Thank you. I'm curious. I'm I'm hearing an Australian accent and and reference to here in Australia. I oh, wasn't that's... expecting another Australian in the call. Oh, that, that's me. I'm Shane. I'm Shane. Hello, Shane. <laughs> Whereabouts are you? I'm north of Brisbane, so in the subtropics. Ah, cool. Yeah, okay. I'm just down south of Coffs Harbour. Ah, okay. Not, so, not that different a climate. So, Ian, could you take a moment to introduce yourself since it's your first time joining us for the podcast, a little bit about who you are and what you grow up? Yeah, sure. So my name's Ian. My name's Ian Epic Earth. I had an epiphany last year and I felt the need to change my name. I run an organization called the Gourmet Garden School, and it is my sole passion and mission to help people grow better quality food because I'm passionate about growing more food of better quality myself. And so my my whole life is consumed with gardening and and identifying potential for growing food and growing that food and sharing the skills for it. And I have a, a strong, so I have an, a history in environmental science and I've applied that to soil health and plant health. And 
more recently to the prospect of land race gardening thanks to a book i read earlier in the year that ignited my passion for the topic after having heard the term some years before but never really exploring it it for me dropped in in a really big way this year because i've spent 20 odd years down the soil microbial path soil chemistry soil mineral balancing working with with mineral elements to understand how we can get the best performance from the soil cultural components looking at different methods of growing to try and intensify the productivity while improving soil health along the way and the land race gardening's dropped in 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 a way that's it actually left me with my jaw on the floor for some time because i realized just <laughs> how powerful that component to the story is and how exciting it is because it doesn't need to be technical and it and it can create the conditions for individual gardeners to get a better experience from their patch whatever their conditions and so it's that's the way i look at really, it that, that's yeah. the way i look at it plant genetics is the most convenient handle and you, you hang on to the plants and then the plants deal with the microbes and the soil and the minerals that that's your right yeah that's your way of, of, of um, interfacing with the rest of the world the plants are the, the most yeah the, the the most handleable part of that system yeah because if i try to change my soil which is limestone and 300 feet deep <laughs> i'm constantly adding more ph changing stuff and it just is impossible but if i select for plants that can handle the ph exactly as it is then it's just easy and simple we're coming My up pleasure. on our on our one hour mark and i'd like to thank uh, mark reed for joining us today thank you holly shane and julia for technical support and that'll wrap us up thank you everyone thank you mm. thanks thanks joseph thanks shane everyone else debbie and mark okay thank you bye-bye bye thanks